was here on Sunday and saw the Prager video. All right, so pretty much everybody. I'm going to do it again because it's, it's going to tie in with um, the age of reason and how it strengthened Christianity. So uh, this will just kind of get us prepped. So take a look at, are we ready to show the video? Okay, let's take a look at it. Thanks. Do you believe that good and evil exist? The answer to this question separates Judeo-Christian values from secular values. Let me offer the clearest possible example. Murder. Is murder wrong? Is it evil? Nearly everyone would answer yes, but now I will pose a much harder question. How do you know? I'm sure you think murder is wrong, Mm. but how do you know? If I asked you how you know that the Earth is round, you would show me photographs from outer space or offer me measurable data. But what photographs could you show? What measurements could you provide that prove that murder or rape or theft is wrong? The fact is, you can't. There are scientific facts, but without God, there are no moral facts. In a secular world, there can only be opinions about morality. They may be personal opinions or society's opinions, but only opinions. Every atheist philosopher I have read or debated on this subject has acknowledged that if there is no God, there is no objective morality. Judeo-Christian values are predicated on the existence of a God of morality. In other words, only if there is a God who says murder is wrong... Is murder wrong? Otherwise, all morality is opinion. The entire Western world, what we call Western civilization, is based on this understanding. Now, let me make two things clear. First, this doesn't mean that if you don't believe in God, you can't be a good person. There are plenty of kind and moral individuals who don't believe in God and Judeo-Christian values. But the existence of these good people has nothing, nothing to do with the question of whether good and evil really exist if there is no God. Second, there have been plenty of people who believed in God who were not good people. Indeed, more than a few have been evil and have even committed evil in God's name. The existence of God doesn't ensure people will do good. I wish it did. The existence of God only ensures that good and evil objectively exist and are not merely opinions. Without God, we therefore end up with what is known as moral relativism, meaning that morality is not absolute, but only relative to the individual or to the society. Without God, the words good and evil are just another way of saying, I like and I don't like. If there is no God, the statement murder is evil is the same as the statement, I don't like murder. Now, many will argue that you don't need moral absolutes. People won't murder because they don't want to be murdered. But that argument is just wishful thinking. Hitler, Stalin, and Mao didn't want to be murdered, but that hardly stopped them from murdering about a hundred million people. It is not a coincidence that the rejection of Judeo-Christian values in the Western world by Nazism and communism led to the murder of all these innocent people. 
It is also not a coincidence that the first societies in the world to abolish slavery, an institution that existed in every known society in human history, were Western societies rooted in Judeo-Christian values. And so were the first societies to affirm universal human rights, to emancipate women, and to proclaim the value of liberty. Today, the rejection of Judeo-Christian values and moral absolutes has led to a world of moral confusion. In the New York Times in March 2015, a professor of philosophy confirmed this. He wrote, What would you say if you found out that our public schools were teaching children that it is not true that it's wrong to kill people for fun? Would you be surprised? I was. The professor then added, The overwhelming majority of college freshmen view moral claims as mere opinions. So then, whatever you believe about God or religion, here is a fact. Without a God who is the source of morality, morality is just a matter of opinion. So, if you want a good world, the death of Judeo-Christian values should frighten you. I'm Dennis Prager. So um, we're going to take a look at the age of reason and Christianity itself. And if you guys are have any background in history and you go through the history of the world, what, what occurs is you have the expanse of Christianity, um, and, and you, we've, all, we've already gone through some Athenian and Greek uh, mind, uh, concepts of democracy, etc. So when Christianity takes a foothold and then begins to travel, as you see the postal route in Revelations through Thessalonica and up through those uh, Turkish and Greek areas of the world. These churches are planted. You have this combination of Aristotle, Socrates, Plato. These these uh, Christian Greek monks begin to assess these things, and they combine two things together. They combine the scriptures that they're studying along with reason and this idea of coming to an understanding. What you witnessed here with Dennis Prager is, did anyone hear a single verse of scripture that Dennis Prager shared? Not Not one, right? He dealt with concepts, epistemology, on, on how you can determine if something is true and correct. And he laid out a case. And what was he using? Was he using scripture and faith? Or was he using reason? Did you hear them use scripture? Well, thou shalt not murder. That's a, that's a portion. But did he cite it? Okay. He, he made a basis on this statement, but what did he use to present, and, and he does this with all of them, he presented to the best of his ability, reason. Everyone got that? So as he lays this out in this course of reason, this is what was occurring in the early stages of Christianity, and then the the... Islamic intifada starts to occur. Muslim forces move into to the Greek world. And these monks then, to, to survive, move over into southern Italy and to the, the Italian region, which starts this renaissance. And in this renaissance, they start to re-examine because they now have protection through borders and the like, so they don't have to worry about the Muslim invasion. And they begin to re-examine these truths, these scriptural truths, so they're applying reason along with faith, and they go from Augustine and, and uh, Thomas Aquinas, and these things start to establish themselves. Now, 
Augustine and Aquinas, when they looked at things, they looked at it two ways. For us, we use an, uh, when we teach our, our, what we call pit training, pastors in training, when we teach some students on how to teach the Bible, we use a method called observation, interpretation, and application. Uh, and it's, it's called inductive Bible study. Um, IBS, it's not an irritable bowel syndrome, it's inductive Bible study. And inductive, uh, the, the concept with inductive is leading to inferences preceded by induction, employed in drawing conclusions from promises, promises. So we have these commands or these promises, and based on that, we do this inductive study that this is what we've been given, this is what's been designed, these are the rules to play by, and based on that, we do an inductive study. Well, what occurred in the age of reason is they went away from inductive study to deductive study, and deductive is simply this, um, deducible, that is, or may be deduced from premises. All knowledge is, is deductive. So you can gain knowledge by the deductive method, but you don't gain wisdom. Knowledge is the accumulation of facts. Every time I drop this, it, it falls. So there's obviously some sort of a law. So I'm, I'm testing it. I'm deducing that this is a constant, right? Law of gravity. And so we can come up with knowledge, but wisdom is a metaphysical concept. Wisdom believes that there's good and evil. Wisdom is this idea that when we do the right thing, we're, we're benefited. So the difference between knowledge and wisdom, knowledge is the accumulation of facts. Wisdom is the applying of those facts for God's purposes for good. You see the difference? So you don't want just simply inductive. You also want deductive reasoning. And so this starts to occur. Prior to... This, what we call age of reason, or as they love to say to themselves, this enlightenment, because they were so self-aggrandizing. You know, but, but prior to this, uh, the, all knowledge and anything that you dealt with in, in the area in which you lived, everything was obtained simply, um, and I, I wrote it down, it was, it was obtained simply by authority, not by reason. And, and most of the folks couldn't read. They couldn't write. So if the priest said it, that settled it. If the king said it, that settled it. The earth is flat. Galileo, get lost. Copernicus, that the earth is the, you know, they all believe that the, er, ethros, er, er, that the earth was the center of the universe. And, and actually, you say, no, the sun is. Copernicus, right? And the Catholic Church, no. The clergy and the kings said, no, authority. So faith without reason is ignorance. Are you tracking me? You can have faith in something, but if it isn't tested, it's a faith not worth having, the scripture says. But can reason lead us to wisdom without faith? The two need to mutually come together. And so what occurred is uh, this, this age of reason begins to be established. Around the 1400s, there's a guy by the name of, uh, actually into the 1500s, his name is Baruch uh, uh, Spinoza. 
And he had an enormous influence. He actually died in, I think, 1607. He had an enormous influence on our founding fathers, not all of them, but many of them, especially Benjamin Franklin. In addition to Spinoza, another one of these um, age of reason philosophers was a man by the name of John Locke. And these two folks started to look at this concept of reason. What's fascinating about Spinoza, Baruch Spinoza, Albert Einstein named Spinoza as a philosopher who exerted the most influence on his worldview. Spinoza equated God, infinite substance, with nature, consistent with Einstein's belief in an impersonal deity. Um, uh, Benjamin Franklin had an English copy of Tractatus, which was in his library, claimed to use it as a reference during the constitutional debate. You can see much of Spinoza's mindset in the, the Declaration of Independence and in the Constitution. The Declaration of Independence, a treaty of Paris, uh, also um, the, the alliance with France, a treaty of Paris, and the U.S. Constitution, the four major founding documents uh, Declaration of Independence included the four major documents of our founding, all signed by Benjamin Franklin, heavily influenced by Spinoza. But here's the interesting thing about Spinoza. He, uh, he was Jewish by birth, but he was a philosopher and he just couldn't, he just couldn't accept, you know, I said it, believe it, that's it. He would, he would pr- provide this deductive reasoning to everything to the point we became a little bit obnoxious and annoying. And so they kicked him out And here's kind of a a brief James Carroll, who was one of the founders. um, He wrote, Spinoza himself was expelled from the synagogue in 1656, investigated by the Catholic Inquisition in 1659, and banned by the Calvinist Synod in 1670. uh, 1670. This experience of omnidirectional religious intolerance underwrote his twofold idea that the state's first obligation is to protect the freedom of conscience of each citizen. To do so, the state must itself... Uh, not itself be religiously identified. So Locke had this concept of, 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 a, of a civil contract that together as a people, we agree to a civil compact. And, and this idea of a declaration of independence, this idea of a U.S. constitution that we, the people, in order to form a more perfect union, we agree to this government, we adhere to its rules, and, and this is the law of the land. But John Locke, unlike Spinoza, was a believer, and, and his civil contract had this understanding of faith applied to it as well. That's why in the Declaration of Independence, endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights, but it also added a Spinoza idea, which the laws of nature and nature's God. So he, they still kept God in there, but they kept this concept of reason as well. Is everybody falling asleep yet, or are you tracking me? And, and, and this, this was this, this combining of this enlightenment period, or, or I should say a revival in the Eastern seaboard where people were coming to faith in addition to this age of reason where all these, these philosophers and these books are gathering on this continent of North America and they collide. In addition, uh, the, the structure for faith of our founders had an enormous influence in our Scottish covenanters and, and, um, of the Scottish Covenanters, they had gone through a, a season uh, with with uh, Reverend Broughton. This man had gone back to revisit all of the original manuscripts, and he was a, a Hebraist. And he started to establish this concept of covenant. That we've covered these covenants. Remember the Edemic Covenant, the Noahic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant. 
these were these Scottish covenanters that put this whole concept together. And this traveled across the Atlantic over to our Eastern seaboard and had an enormous influence. So you combine the age of reason with these philosophers. You combine this covenanter concept of a God that works in the affairs of man. And then you had this great awakening that occurred on the Eastern seaboard. And all this comes together to create these articles that we have in our declaration of independence in our U S constitution. And it is a, it's a spiritual contract and it was fascinating. Now that being said, the one thing that we, we, we gained in this age of reason with these philosophers is we started to be able to not allow authority just to demand what we believe. The divine right of kings, you'll shut up, do as you're told and like it. And all of a sudden we started to think about this civil compact of self-governance. We stepped outside the box and we no longer had to listen to those in authority. Because guys like Spinoza and Locke were challenging that authority by deductive reasoning as opposed to inductive. And the two combined in this revisiting. And this, this age of reason ends up becoming an enormous blessing to the church. But some have written, and I'll, I'll share with you, it both strengthened and challenged the church. It both strengthened and challenged the church. Today, the church in America has moved away from deductive reasoning in some realms. We don't look at the concept of government. We don't look at the concept of society or sociology or anthropo. We just, we just preach the word. And so this age of reason is kind of moving away from the church and we leave that to the secular philosopher. We don't engage in that anymore because we don't really believe that God's scripture pertains to any of that. Our founders did. They combined the two, this, this idea of inductive and deductive reasoning and they put the two together. Now, the emphasis on reason when it detracts from faith becomes a competitor for Christianity. Let me repeat that, and you tell me if we're there. The emphasis on reason when it detracts from faith becomes a competitor for Christianity. Welcome to California. Do do you see? And this age of reason without faith, uh, faith without reason is detrimental. Reason without faith is detrimental. They need each other. It can help faith. Reason comes along as, as the handmaid of faith. The church has often said, and I've, I've heard my, my seminary professors say that. When we think reasonably about our faith, when our faith is a confidence that rests on evidence that we look at with our reason, faith becomes stronger. Right? Would you agree with that? Okay. What we believe about God both shapes and reflects what we believe about everything else. Is murder wrong? Hello? Well, where did you come up with that idea? Thou shalt not. God! Faith in a God you've never seen. That you believe his word is absolute. Yet the man who, who emphasized it the most... most didn't even cite the scripture, but barely used it and, and approached it strictly on a reasoning basis to contend with society. He's applying deductive and inductive reasoning. See? Theology raises important questions as to who we are as humans. Fearfully and wonderfully made. Look at this passage of scripture. 
Psalm 139, verse 14, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works that my soul knows very well. And the two things I saw in this in relation to man, fear and wonder. Fear and wonder of respect. This is a reverential fear of, of submission to a creator, but wonderfully made in the sense that we're creating the image of God. And you know what? We're a mystery. Has anyone said to themselves, what were you thinking? Has anyone who's who's married looked at their spouse and said, I totally get you. Anyone ever said to the opposite sex? (laughs) Totally. I I remember there was a book that was written um, by a man. Everything a man knows about a woman and you open it up and it's blank. So... Just thought I'd share that, but it wasn't as funny as I thought it would be. <laughs> the answer to our human condition is explained only in our understanding of God. That's why we're studying theology, the study of God. The more we understand the Lord, the more we'll understand ourselves. We don't get ourselves. I'll just give you a perfect example. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7 says, Those things I want to do, I don't do those. Those things I don't want to do, those I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I have no idea how to deal with this life. But then he goes on to say, I thank God in Christ Jesus. He finds his identity. He finds the answers to this complexity of who he is. And he goes through this enormous struggle. And this is that idea, this this rebirth that we see in this age of reason. But I like what some authors say. Reason will fall short to understand God without faith. You can only go so far. I was talking with a brother who, um, he does crime scene investigation. He has a chemistry degree. Uh, he he, He was an atheist the majority of his life up until he came to Christ less than a year ago. Um... And he just said that door just kept opening and opening and opening. And he said, I was, I was a defiant atheist, but I couldn't look at chemistry and see these concepts. And the more that I applied deductive reasoning, these things didn't make sense without faith. How can this structure be so defined, have no other purpose except this mold or this spore cures cancer, but it's not even connected in any way, shape or form to that. Why, why would that be? That doesn't make any deductive sense. And he just said this, ha- and it's so fascinating. He would just be, he would marvel at the design and the structure of, of these intricate cells. And he just began to, in this deductive reason, he knew there was something, but that alone wouldn't do it until he became so overwhelmed like the apostle Paul, that his life came to this place of an abyss. And it was there in a meeting that somebody began to share with him how people know unless someone tells them. He's moved by it. He's invited to come to church. He sits down. And the first thing I talk on, I don't even remember the sermon, as I talked on leprosy out of Leviticus. It's like 60 verses on leprosy. And that message floored him. I should preach on leprosy more often. (laughs) But it opened up this door and this faith, along with this inductive and deductive reasoning, absolutely transformed his life that as, as he was sharing today as I was having coffee with him and he was telling his testimony to two people I was with, 
we, we were all so touched is how God has healed his life, healed his family, done an, an enormous thing by combining this faith along with reason. And, and his reason has become stronger because his faith has been infused with it. And he, that's, that's how it strengthens the church. He's been in the realm of reason. He never had faith. His reason was falling apart. But we also find in the dark ages that if the authority is just telling you what to do and the earth is flat and, and the earth is the center of the known universe and all the priests say it, shut up and do as you're told and like it, that doesn't do any good either, right? Hello? And we can't be ignorant and stupid as Christians. The Bible says study to show yourself approved. So you apply these concepts of reason. Epistemology is uh, how we arrive at a trustworthy knowledge of what is true. How do I know that something is true? Self-reflection is a human puzzle. I mean, I'm 53 years old and I, I, I look at myself and, and I think, I mean, have you ever looked in a mirror and just, maybe you haven't, but I have. I just, who are you? Has anyone ever had that fun experience in the empty abyss as you just continue to stare going, I can't stop looking. It's awful. And, and who we are at 53 was not who we were at 23. Yes. Some of us probably should go back and start over. Quit looking at me. But, but we, we, we come to this place of, of self-reflection. And, and what are we reflecting on and what are we weighing ourselves on and how are we measuring ourselves? And who are we giving accounting to? And how do we base our life and everything around us? And how involved are we supposed to be? These are questions of life. And this is what occurred with this age of reason that really helped the church. And because of the combination of inductive and deductive reasoning and the age of reasoning combined with faith, this is what established an amazing form of government. Now, I know in this sense, when we look at this age of reason, I want to show you in a sense how it breaks down. Um, well, here's, again, here's inductive, leading to in inferences, proceeding by induction, employed and in drawing conclusions from promises as inductive reasoning. So you're basing every view of your life on what God says. Uh, deductive reasoning says, well, why does God say that? You, 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 why do you interpret that God says it that way? What is, what, what is your hermeneutics how, or, or your exegetical approach to it? Your exhortation, how, how do you come to that? That's deductive deducing that is or may be deduced from premises. All knowledge is deductive. Now, that being said, does anyone know what this is? Anyone know what's Nuremberg trials? Who doesn't know about the Nuremberg trials? I don't feel bad because there's probably a lot of people just who's brave enough to acknowledge. Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you. Amen. The Nuremberg trials happened in 1945 after uh, Nazi Germany surrendered. They brought 20 key leaders of the Nazi regime to put them on trial for crimes against humanity. Over to the left with the headphones on is um, Goering, Hermann Goering. Uh, that's Rudolf Hess next to him. Uh, Admiral Donitz, <laughs> not like Donitz. I, I don't know the others, but they're all there and they're on trial. And they wanted them executed. 
These are folks that are responsible for, for the murder, just simple murder of six and a half million Jews in the most heinous and evil of ways, let alone over 50 million people who died as a result of them wanting to conquer the world and invading countries. Now, before we get into the Nuremberg trials, because this is a very, there, there's probably no one living right now, um, maybe, maybe a few people who, who watched portions of the Nuremberg trials. You may have seen them on replays, but people would stay glued to it. And they would, they would watch these uh, to see how justice would be established with these heinous criminals, Right? Before I go through the Nuremberg trials, age of reason, faith, because reason without faith breaks down, faith without reason becomes cloistered and strange. Listen to this. X, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a case and you tell me what you think. Mr. X is guilty of murder if in order that he and Mr. Y, who are adrift on a raft, did not want to die of starvation, they kill Mr. Z, number three, who's already sick, so they can retain their water and live longer. Are they guilty of murder? Okay, how about this? A German, is a German soldier guilty of murder if, in order that he may not be shot for disobedience and his wife tortured in a concentration camp, he shoots a Catholic priest by order of his commanding officer? No, he's not guilty. He shoots an innocent Catholic priest. Huh? Chain of command. It's an unlawful order. Milai massacre. Remember this? It's an act. How far do we take this? So were any, any of these men guilty? They were obeying orders. Hitler's dead. They were all under authority of Hitler. I like that you brought that. It, are any of them guilty? That was war. They were obeying orders. <laughs> See how confusing it is? Oh, absolutely. Well, but. Hmm. Huh? They're officers. All right, let me, let me reread it then. An enlisted man, I mean, I'll give you any example you want, but he, he, kills, he kills three, he kills, he kills a hundred children because his commanding officer said to, otherwise he'd be, sent, he'd be killed and his wife would be sent to a concentration camp. Is, is it now justified? A hundred little children, is it now justified? No, no, they're at war. These are, these are enemy combatants. These children are, is it justified? All right, let's make it a thousand children. Are you tracking me? How far do we go with this? This is what was so baffling about the Nuremberg trials 
because you're looking at the men that were responsible for the entire world's hell for the last 15 years. And everyone seeing those faces could associate it with somebody they knew who had died. What kind of justice are we going to get? At the heart of this debate is the philosophical question about the nature of morality and its relationship to the law and state sovereignty. Do other countries have the duty and the right to hold leaders accountable if they commit atrocities against their own people? Were the Nuremberg trials simply another instance of the claim that justice and morality are nothing but the interests of the stronger? Who was putting them on trial? France, England, the United States, and Russia. The winners. Well, that's debatable, but the ones who are victors. So, what's the answer? This is where theology is of great importance. The answer to our human condition is explained only in our understanding of God. And this is baffling. And it didn't take me long to confuse all of you. Here's one. Who's wrong in this picture? Who's wrong in this picture? Uh, You know what they're doing. And what's this guy doing? Heil that. Look at his face. Who is violating the law of the land? Anybody know who this is? Colonel von Stauffenberg? Everyone see Valkyrie? There were over 40 attempts on Hitler's life. He was one of them. He tried to kill Hitler. Went into the bunker and brought a bomb and Hitler sat on the wrong side of the table. He was actually a war hero, and, and this it showed he had a glass eye. He wore a patch. Hitler actually gave him the Iron Cross, pinned it on him while he was recovering. He tried to kill Hitler, and Hitler killed him. This is a statue of where he was shot, and this is a this is him, you know, naked in in the same quad where they had shot him. He had violated an order. He tried to kill his commanding officer. Who's guilty? Does this get confusing to anybody? Let me read this to you. In 1945, American and British forces began to unearth the horrible evidence that the Nazi regime led by Adolf Hitler had systematically tortured and slaughtered. And if you ever have any problem, just go to Buchenwald, go to Auschwitz, go and see the pile of shoes and the children's shoes. You, you go to Yad Vashem in Israel, nobody leaves there the same. You're sobbing when you leave. It's devastating. Systematically slaughtered and tortured over 6 million Jews during World War II on April 15th, or uh, that's Holocaust Memorial Day, the ruthless murder of so many innocent men and women and children should never be forgotten, nor should we ever forget the legal basis. Here we go. The legal basis upon which German leaders were held accountable for such terrible crimes at the famous Nuremberg trials. They were, they were found guilty. And by the way, today, the progressives, the, these 
reason without faith. They believe that the Nuremberg trials were illegal and wrong. That's, that's the common theme in the world today. It wasn't in World War II. Let me walk you through a little process of it, and you tell me. After the war, many German military leaders were uh, prosecuted in Nuremberg, Germany, for war crimes, crimes against humanity, by an international military tribunal formed by France, Great Britain, the United States, Soviet Union. The Nazi defendants, the Nazis themselves, defended themselves, uh, and they objected to being put on trial for simply following orders and the laws of their country, their sovereign country. Those are the laws of their land. That, that guy's breaking the law. These are the laws of the land. He broke the law. They also complained that defining crimes after the fact constituted improper ex post facto laws, which is specifically prohibited by the United States Constitution and the laws of many other nations. So that wasn't their law. And now they're being put on trial by a law that they were never under. This is why folks today believe that the Nuremberg trials were illegal. So on what basis could the victor nations presume to convene these war crime trials in Nuremberg? Does anyone have any idea? Huh? Say it louder. God's law. Nobody's brought that up tonight. And someone's going, well, yeah, God's law. Yeah, God's law. Yeah, well, they didn't recognize it. Does it matter? The answer to the question I just posed, uh, this idea of on, on what basis could these victor nations presume to convene war crimes um, in these trials in Nuremberg? And I want to read to you what I believe is the answer to that question. The lead prosecutor at Nuremberg was an American. His name was Robert Jackson. He was also a uh, justice on the United States Supreme Court at the time, Robert Jackson. And I want to read to you what he stated. He said, even rulers are, as Lord Chief Justice Koch said to King James, under God and the law. The Nuremberg Court rejected the argument of Nazi defendants that there was no pre-existing law and appealed to natural law in its judgment, noting that so far from it being unjust to punish them, it would be unjust if their wrongs were allowed to go unpunished. Despite the fact that the defendants were following orders and the laws of their country, they were found guilty of violating, ready? A higher law to which all nations were e equally subject. But you know what's fascinating about this? The Soviet Union, now defunct, but the Soviet Union, God didn't exist. Why do you think they agreed to it? They wanted territory, probably, I don't know. But this is fascinating. You have, a, you have an entire nation that's part of this, that doesn't even exist, acknowledge the existence of God. Sir Hartley Shawcross, the British prosecutor, said that there could be no immunity for those who obey orders, which, whether legal or not, in the country where they are issued, are manifestly contrary to the very law of nature from which international law has grown. Both the British and American prosecutors were expressing something well understood in the law at the time. The law of man and nations is subject to the laws of God and the laws of nature. Now, says who? Two nations that recognize the rule of law. 
Where does law come from? Thou shalt not. You pointed it out. Where does it come from? The Bible. Who gave us the Bible? So your view of God is going to be this, that your understanding of theology is going to determine how you see life. These were two Western theologically founded concepts of supreme law of God. Sir William Blackstone in his commentaries on the law of England in 1765 explained the law of nature in this way. This law of nature being coexistent with mankind and dictated by God himself is of course superior in obligation to any other. It is binding over all the globe, in all countries, and at all times. No human laws are of any validity if contrary to this. Now, stop for a moment. We then went into um, the League of Nations, the United Nations, right? The Human Manifesto. Do you realize that on our earth, the the International Organization of Muslim Nations, that a woman is subservient to a man and must, and you can go through the whole thing. Do we in the Western world agree with that? That Sharia law is preeminent. Do we agree with that in the Western world? Well, then why, why are we so content to allow them to establish Sharia law in Michigan, in Flint, Michigan? Why is all of England imploding? We've, they, they've outlawed guns in England. And now they're outlawing knives in England. They have no guns. You're not, even if you're a hunter, you have to keep your gun at the hunting lodge. So they don't have any guns in England. And yet their murder rate is higher than New York City's. And it's by stabbing. So now they're going to take away knives. If someone is pulled over for a DUI, drunk, under the influence, or driving under the influence, is it the driver's fault or the alcohol's fault? Bartender's fault. Okay, let's blame the bartender. That's California. I'm sorry, Tom? Oh. Thank you for mumbling it then. The fact that the law of God is the basis for international law was not new to British and American jurisprudence at the Nuremberg Trials. 1791, James Wilson, one of the first United States Supreme Court justices appointed by President Washington, explained the law of nations as follows. The law of nature, when applied to states or political societies, receives a new name, that of the law of nations. The law of nations, as well as the law of nature, is of obligation indispensable. The law of nations, as well as the law of nature, is of origin divine. Uh, Wilson emphasized that all law flows from the same divine source. It is the law of God. Human law must rest its authority ultimately upon the authority of that law, which is divine. Before the formation of the United Nations, our forefathers understood that all nations were subject to the law of God. And that's where we got this concept of Lex Rex by Samuel Rutherford, which established that. And you even look in the Bible and we've covered this. What did the people of Israel want uh, as far as a leader? Did they want God? They wanted a king. And Samuel was bummed. And God said, they're not upset with you, Samuel. They're upset with me. Give him a king. So he gives him Saul. Then Saul disobeys God. And who confronts him? Samuel. And, and Saul's done. David then becomes king. David sleeps with Bathsheba and murders Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. 
who confronts David? Nathan. Were these constitutional republics or monarchies? It doesn't matter the form of government. Everyone is subject to God's law. Nathan said, you violated God's law. Samuel said to Saul, you violated God's law. It doesn't matter if we're a constitutional republic or if we're in a monarchy or if you're in a fascist nation, you're not allowed to kill them and put me to death. I'm standing on principle here. I'm not killing children. You're going to die. So be it. There's a higher law. That is, that is the establishment of his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That we see the value of every human life in a fallen world and we stand for it. You grasp that? When you turn to the thoughts of the horrors of the Holocaust, don't forget that the Nazis at Nuremberg were held accountable because of the higher law of God to which all nations at all times are subject. Romans 1. And people say, ah, how can you make people subject to God's law? They don't even know exists. Romans 1. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world is invisible, attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. You can make up any story you want, but the reality is you can't look at the human body just like, just like the chemist, the CSI chemist who came to Christ. You can't look single-celled creatures and deny the existence of a creator. There's a designer. You can make up any fanciful story you want and do anything, but you're not using deductive reasoning and you're certainly not using inductive reasoning. And, and by the absence of faith, even if you use deductive reasoning, if you did it correctly, it would, it would open that door because every man's without excuse if you're going to do it right. So when you turn on Facebook and you see that there's 90 different genders, there are two. There, there's dysphoria, but you can't change this, the DNA and the cell makeup of a human being. Yeah, there's a psyche issue. We're all bent and warped and we've all been affected by things. I don't, I don't deny that. But there's two genders. Now, dismiss it and tell everyone that they're, they're not going to get, you know, a, a teaching position in any major university. Threaten them, put a gun to their head and tell them that they're going to go to a concentration camp and they're, 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 they're going to be killed and their family's going to be sent to a concentration camp unless they adhere to what they're telling you. Well, all you're doing is believing by authority and deductive reasoning is removed and we no longer teach kids how to learn. We don't educate them anymore. We indoctrinate them. And where's the outcry? Where's the application of faith to that? The church has removed its deductive side and its age of reason. We, hey, do we just, just let us do the faith thing. We won't invade any of the reasoning side. But everyone is without excuse. Look at this one, Isaiah. Come now and let us reason together. Though your sins were as scarlet, they'll be washed as white as snow. God uses reason, the age of reason. He uses reason along with faith to make us fully understand why we're here and what we're doing. 
And it's the foundation of everything that we do. Where did, where did child labor laws come from? Atheists or Christians? Christians. Who ended slavery in the Western world long before any other, and every civilized society had slavery? Who ended it? Christians. Women's suffrage? Christians. Civil rights? Christians. We, we just, you just watched all of the slave trade, the sex trafficking, human trafficking? Christians. Why? Because God said it's wrong. Why would anyone else be involved in that trade? Because whatever culture is funding it doesn't think it's all that bad. How do you kill a billion people? It's just a a statistic. Again, my friend who does CSI, crime scene investigation, for the county, Before being a believer, he's dealing with 16 to 18 year old Hispanic black youth who've been shot, stabbed, overdosed, inner city kids, Oxnard, Port Wainimi, just slabs of human meat, and writing them off as survival of the fittest, going home and just trying to make it all go away. Then he has two children and he sees them and he's never loved anything like that in all of his life. He goes back to work and they're no longer slabs of meat, they're people. They're somebody's son or somebody's father at 16. And all of a sudden you start realizing, why are there so many bodies coming into my office? What can I do about this? That's called conviction. Conviction. Reason matches faith, and the world changes. Paul wrote, God has revealed them to us through his spirit, for the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. You want to know who you really are? Come to know the Lord. Life starts making sense. Here's a question for you. If, you're, if, if you just have reason and no faith, why are you here? Really, why are you here? I want to make the world a better place. Why? What, really, what's the point? And what is better? Better compared to what? And, and what is justified? Is it survival of the fittest? What are, what are the laws that govern you? And are, is it a moving scale? And, and is it subjective? Is, is it situational ethics? Who stops evil then? Valkyrie, Stauffenberg did. Bonhoeffer did. Over 40 attempts to try to stop that madman. This is why we're here. I know why I'm here. Here's another one. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, this is the ending portion of that. Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. Everything starts to make sense. My friend who had reason now has faith, and he's like, man, you know what? It's fun to get up in the morning. This is kind of refreshing. Life has meaning. 
This is the apostle Paul before King Agrippa. He's a ruler. And Paul applies reason. He says, for the king before whom I also speak freely knows the things, knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escape his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. He's saying to Agrippa, you're a sharp dude. I, I know that the logic I'm applying, and there's a, there's a sorcerer who's trying to win his heart, and it's actually Paul who convinces Agrippa with reason, with applied faith and reason. And then I'll leave it at this. It's 8.06. This is Isaiah. I love this passage of scripture. Isaiah 58. It's fun to read. Write it down if you like it. Isaiah 55 verses 8 through 11. Ready? For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my, my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and they do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return void to me, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the things for which I sent it. His ways are not our ways, but the more that we apply reason, we come to understand him in greater capacities when we apply faith and we want to understand it. That's why I'll leave you with this. The name that you see in Genesis chapter one, God said, let us make man. And the word is Elohim. It's singular plurality. It's a picture of the Trinity in the Old, in the Old Testament. Singular plurality. Let us. There's only one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Trichotomy, three part, you know, of the, of, of the Godhead. And, and it says, let us make man in our image. And that's a hard one for us to comprehend. Right? Gives you an excedrin headache. I, I, I don't know how to explain it. Oh, it's like water. Well, it can be a gas and a solid and a liquid. Yeah, but they don't talk to each other. Right? And answer each other. Right? Well, it's like, it's like me. I, I'm, I'm a father. I'm, I'm a son. And I'm also a husband. Again, I don't, I do talk to myself, but I, and I answer myself, but I'm not separately doing that. If you track me and I'm not in different places at the same time. And so when he says, let us make man in our own image, this, this, this trichotomy, this picture his ways are not our ways. He's above us in that regard. But the singular plurality, unified diversity is where we get the word university. Diverse study with a unified purpose. Deductive study with a unified purpose of inductively applying the knowledge for wisdom. We want to know the God who created us and why we're here. It's not just study just to get knowledge. You know, you, you can be have a lot of knowledge and be a really well-educated criminal, right? We've all been taking advantage of those in Wall Street. It's this. For a sole purpose of knowing God in a greater way, you apply reason with faith. And it makes the world a better place because you start to understand economics and sociology and political science and all these things apply and God does wonders through it. I'll, um, I'll leave you with this. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts are not your thoughts. One of my kids called me. Um, I have five, so you can't figure out who it is. And they were just struggling with life. The path and the direction just didn't seem to be going the way that they had planned. 
And, and it, it's, it's affecting them. And anyone who's a parent, you've had that call from your kids, and they're, they're distraught. They're overwhelmed. They're like, none of it's making sense, Dad. I said to my child, they point out everything I've planned isn't working. I said, I got it. I said, am I a good dad? Yeah, you're a great dad. Am I a good husband? You're a wonderful husband. Am I a good friend? Yeah, yeah, you are. Am I a good pastor? Dad, you're, you're a really good pastor. You're a good preacher. Why are you asking me this? Because well, I need affirmation. No, I, I said, there's a point to it. I said, am I a good city councilman? Are you a good city councilman? Yeah, Dad. Okay. I said to my child, do you know that when I was your age, I never wanted to be any of those things? Not one of them. Wasn't even on my radar. And everything I wanted to do got shot down and drove me to my knees. And the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I had knowledge, but no wisdom. It also says, trust in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. You know what happened? As I trusted the Lord, he became the desire of my heart. And he changed everything for me. And all the things I'm doing, I never intended to do. But I want to tell you something. I love my life and I love you. And it's going to be all right. His ways are not our ways. Now I had knowledge. Doors were open to me when it was applied with faith. And it made a whole difference in everything I've ever done. That's the age of reason. And that's how it helped the church. And hopefully that's how it helps us tonight. And I am finished.